0: Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Tonight we're going to pick up in 1 Kings chapter 17, and for context we're actually going to jump back a few verses to chapter 16, verses 29. So let's pick up reading there. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Aubrey, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Okay, now picking up in chapter 17, verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. Now that's not a very solid introduction for a very significant character in the history of Israel Uh, Elisha ends up being the archetypical prophet, not that there aren't prophets before him, and there are definitely prophets after, but he is the one who stands for them all. You may remember that when Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, as they look and his clothing is changed to brightness and they see his glory exposed, they also see him speaking with Moses as well as Elijah here which kind of looks over the whole Old Testament period with the Pentateuch and the story of Moses as well as with Elijah as the representative prophet. But here we know very little about him except for the basic information that we get from most Hebrew story characters. Uh, his name, his uh, father's name or his clan, his family name uh, as where as where he's from. But it's striking here that the first thing he does is not go or come uh, or do, but he just opens his mouth. The text just jumps us right in. Notice again, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, Elijah's role, like all the prophets, is to be the mouthpiece of the living God. And so although there are 22 years with Ahab on the throne and doing wickedly, it's not that God is absent. Now, to understand what Elijah is about to say here, you have to understand how Baal worship worked. Baal was a storm god of the Canaanites, uh, primarily headquartered in Sidon, in the area we would call Phoenicia, the area of the Sidonians. And so when, when Ahab marries Jezebel, she brings her own gods with her, especially her devotion to Baal. What's worth noting here is we've seen that before right? That was Solomon's problem. He loved many foreign women, and they led his heart to other gods. But Jezebel is something else. She doesn't merely bring her personal worship preferences into Israel. She seeks to reform the worship of Israel and make Baal, the one true and only one worthy of worship. As I mentioned, Baal is a storm god. He is the provider of rain. In fact, they believed not only did he provide the rain that gave, uh, you know, life in the fields and all of those things, uh, but also to explain the dry season where he wasn't active and present, they believed that annually Baal had to be killed and then resurrected by the god of death, Mott. And so there's a cyclical nature to Baal. And so uh, the worship of Baal here involves where does fruitfulness come from? Where does abundance come from? Who provides for Israel? And now Israel is saying that Baal provides for Israel. And so that's why Elijah comes, and notice what he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, okay, he speaks here with an oath. He says, as God lives, but that's more than just kind of something you'd raise your right hand and say before something important. It is the theme, it is the point that Elijah wants Israel to understand, the difference between a living God and no God at all. And so what he's going to demonstrate here is that God of that God of Israel is alive and Baal is not. And so he says, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, he speaks of a divinely sanctioned drought. Okay. In other words, he's going to demonstrate that Baal has no power to provide uh, that rain actually comes at the word of the Lord and through here, his prophet Elijah. Verse 2: The word of the Lord came to him: Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So, as soon as he gives this proclamation and the, the clock is started on this drought, God tells him basically to flee to run, and he sends him to the brook Cherith east of the Jordan. So if you, can, uh, if you can envision Israel in your mind, remember here we're in the ten northern tribes, and so Judah and Jerusalem is down here. Up here are the ten northern tribes of Israel, and currently we are in Jezreel, and Samaria, those are the two places that are of focal points here. Samaria being the capital of Israel and Jezreel being one of the places where there's, you know, a summer, summer palace, basically. And so here he goes not into the south, into Judah, but to the east, away from the Mediterranean Sea and across the Jordan River, okay? And so the Sea of Galilee is at the top of the Jordan River, and then the Jordan goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. He's now outside of Israel proper, And he's in hiding. Uh, Now, God directs him to a specific brook. And then notice what God does for here. Despite the drought, he provides for his prophet. And so he's commanded here in verse 4, You shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, notice the contrast, right? God declares a drought over all Israel. Israel which Baal can do nothing about. But here, not only is Elijah taken care of, but by ravens. It's, it's miraculous. It's, it's a utilization of the natural realm in an unnatural way. And so, as we see in verse 5, he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that's east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And so twice a day, birds would bring him his daily portion, and we're not told how long he lives here, but the drought is three years, okay? So he spends those three years in two places. First, here at the brook until it dries up, where he's fed twice daily by the ravens, and then uh, in Zarephath with a, with a widow. Uh, and so even if we just even this out, this is a long-standing provision that God uh, makes taking care of, of Elijah and then verse 7 after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land just as Elijah had said verse 8 then the word of the Lord came to him arise go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon now we just talked about Sidon didn't we here Elijah is sent out of Israel and into Sidonia right into Sidon uh, in fact into Zarephath which is relatively close to Jezebel's hometown He's now in the territory of Baal itself. Now, one of the things you need to remember about the ancient Near East context is that most polytheistic religions, because most of them had national deities, also ascribed to those deities deities, locales of power. In other words, they recognized that this is the god of the Sidonians, and so there was a significance to that, Uh, significance to that place a significance to that power here he's operating in Baal's home turf it's similar to back in the book of Judges when the ark is captured uh, and is taken away by the Philistines and put in one of their temples but the thing is if it's the ark of the God of Israel and it's in the temple of Dagon it's no longer Dagon's temple and so they find, they come in and they find their statue of Dagon collapsed in front of the Ark, and they pick it up, and they come back the next day and they find it collapsed again, but now the head has broken off and the hands have been broken off, uh, and they, that's when they realize the danger of, uh, of the Ark, God of Israel can't just be grafted into their pantheon or left in their temple, uh, the whole world belongs to the Lord. And so he goes here into the neighboring country of Sidon, the city of Zarephath, and he's sent to a widow. In fact, notice here, behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. That's the same phrase that was used as the ravens, okay? So in the first case, God has control over nature, but here it's through a widow, and when it says he's commanded her to feed him, I want you to watch how this actually plays out in verse 10. He arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Now remember, this is during a drought, okay? Now, who knows, maybe the drought wasn't as severe or significant in Sidon, but it's not a big area, Israel and the surrounding area. Um, and secondly here, as we'll see, the woman is experiencing tremendous difficulty uh, in the area of her pantry, and so we can assume here that what happens here happens in the context of a drought, and Elijah asks this woman to bring water, A, a difficult thing to provide, something she may only have a little access to, and she goes, one of the things that's striking from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament is the emphasis upon hospitality. Okay. And so she is asked and he goes, but notice verse 11, as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord, your God lives. Now I want you to notice two things there. One, she's familiar with the God of Israel. Two, she puts that God at a distance not as the Lord my God lives, nor as Baal lives, but as the Lord your God lives, okay? Somehow she is aware of the reputation of the God of Israel. And so she takes an oath in his name. Now, Jesus makes a point with this uh, in his own ministry when he's trying to explain to Israel that his role as Messiah goes beyond the boundaries of Israel. And he points out that when Elijah goes and is taken care of, he goes where? To a foreign widow and receives care there. But as she's here uh, saying this, we see what the problem is. Verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil and jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She is preparing for death. She has one meal left, and she, the only reason she's even out by the gate is she's gathering up enough wood for a final fire, for a final bake of a little bit of bread, and then her and her son uh, are going to pass away. That's how significant the drought is. Now notice verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. Now if we just read this straight as it is, uh, it honestly just sounds demanding and cruel, right? She's just explained she doesn't even have enough for tomorrow and what she does have is hardly anything for today and he says that's fine, just give me the first portion and then you can go back and cook some more. But we should recognize what this is, As we're about to see, God is going to miraculously provide for Elijah through this woman and therefore for this woman and her son as well. Um, But what this is, is an opportunity for faith. In fact, notice he doesn't stop talking there. He says, do this, and then he tells her why. It's not a test, and that's important. The goal isn't here, let's see if you really you know, respect me most. Let's see if you really love me most. No, it's an opportunity to, for, for faith. And verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here, she's not putting her trust in Elijah, even though she'll come to see him as the mouthpiece of God, as a man of God. She's putting her trust in the promise of this God of Israel that she's apparently heard about. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. For the duration of the drought, every time you go to this jug, every time you go to the container and you reach in, there will always be a little bit more. There will always be enough for today. In verse 15, she went and did, as Elijah said, And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And so we see here that the word of the Lord is just as powerful in Sidon as it is in Israel. The same word that restrains rain falling upon Israel and uh, and Sidon here, also miraculously provides out of the pantry of a widow day after day after day. But, verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him, which is a relatively soft way of saying he died, okay? Here, he dies of his illness. Now, notice, too, Uh, Notice in verse 18 how she speaks to Elijah. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. Now there's two striking things about that. The first is, what would have happened if Elijah hadn't shown up? Right? She was preparing her last meal for her and her son. They were both going to perish, but because God sends Elijah... They've been taken care of. And so so here we see she's rattled by this. She's forgetful. And we all have that tension, don't we, between faith and forgetfulness? Where the problems of today seem significantly greater than the problems of yesterday. Even though the only reason we're here to face them is sometimes, frankly and honestly, because God provided in such a significant way yesterday. But on top of that, I want you to notice that she questions here Elijah's presence in her life, and she says, is this an act of judgment? Have you come to bring my sin in remembrance upon me? In other words, she says, is the death of my son somehow what I've had coming this whole time, and that's what this is all about. Now, we're not told much about this woman here. We know that she is a widow, um, but there's something in her life, something significant that she ties to the death of her son. She has guilt. And she questions what's going on here. Now, there's one leather, one last layer of context to um, to bring here, right? The the one God that Baal is subject to is Mot, death. Even Baal can't resist death, and it's only at Mot's hand that he's resurrected every year. And so here is the tension for this Sidonian uh, widow. For us as readers, what about the God of Israel in death? And so we read here, verse 19, He said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O my Lord God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? So notice here he comes as a representative of the widow, And he speaks with the same language she does. He says, have you brought this judgment upon the woman? It's important to recognize here uh, one of two things. Either Elijah wasn't given any forward information about this possibility. He's operating here based on the circumstances and coming before God to seek his will. Uh, Or he's in the loop and yet he still enters into the petition of the woman into the heart of the widow for her son. You see, the reason why I bring that up is because what we would label this either way is intercession. And as an intercessor, Elijah speaks with honesty and presents to God not just a problem to be solved, but does it in the context of God's known character. He questions God's character here, not of unbelief, but in faith. Much like Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he takes him for a private conversation and they're overlooking the valley and beneath is Sodom and Gomorrah and God tells Abraham what's about to happen. And Abraham starts to question and he says, won't the God of all the earth do rightly? What if there's righteous people in that city? right? He contends for, and who's especially on his mind is Lot, he contends for the righteous in Sodom, but as he does it, there's a tension between the respect of your God in heaven, and I'm only on earth. You can feel that in every word out of his mouth, and also a tension of, shall not the God of the earth do rightly? God, this is the God I know you to be. We see the same thing with Moses as he comes before the Lord. Uh, As God says, Israel has gone too far this time. I'm going to wipe them out. In fact, Moses, your children are going to be the new Israel. Set aside the family of Abraham. Let's talk about the family of Moses. And he steps in and he says, But what about your glory, God? What will all the nations who have been looking think if they see that you were able to bring Israel out of Egypt but not able to bring them into the promised land, not to fulfill your promises? Intercession is not based on the innocence or the deservation of the parties involved. It's based on the character of God. That's where it's pushed. He doesn't challenge specifically if this son is innocent, if the widow's done nothing wrong. He pushes instead beyond that. And he prays here in verse 21, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life Come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And Remember, the narrator here, he's been been using this word lives. He's used it twice so far as God lives. So also the widow's son lives right? The relationship here is one of contrast. Verse 24, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and this is the word of the Lord, in your mouth is truth. Now, does that mean she was still questioning? Probably not, right? After day and day, day after day of miraculous provision, one of two things, once again, is either going on. Either now I remember again, now I've learned again, now I know for sure, now God has shown his faithfulness again, and I know that his word is true and that you speak for him. Or she's saying this experience trumps everything beforehand. I knew of, but now I know personally. Now I've encountered. You know, there's, there's a new depth to her understanding of who God is. Now, one of the things that I love about this story is we need to remember here that God could have provided for Elijah with more ravens and another river. And it's true, God here in doing things this way and in the story being recorded says clearly and fully and significantly, the God of Israel is the God of everywhere. Baal has no power. In a similar way when we look at the Exodus, every one of the plagues that God brings upon Egypt is a challenge to their pantheon. Every one of them is tied to one of the gods that Egypt worshiped, and God shows himself master over all of them. Right? But also here we have this beneficiary, and who is she? I mean, be honest. If you were God and you were trying to impress people, where would you do your miracles? Who would you go after? Why doesn't Elijah end up in the household, in the palace of Sidon? Why does he end in the place where there's influence and all of these things and then demonstrate these things? Why is it a widow? Because God cares for the widow. She's desperate and God meets her desperation in sending Elijah Luther has this phrase, and I've been stalling because I've been trying to recall it. Uh, He talks about how often uh, we find God's mercy, that's what it is, accidental mercy. And he doesn't mean accidental like, oops, I spilled some mercy. He means incidental. He means there are God's covenant, and then there are these places where God just reaches beyond it and touches lives outside the covenant. And it flows through all of the history of Israel. Jesus, like I said earlier, lays a finger on that and says, this shows that this is not just the God for Israel, but for the whole world. This shows that God's interest is above and beyond uh, Israel. And as we continue to read through First and Second Kings, we'll see more occasions of this. Random foreign kings who God takes care of. Okay. Um, but here, we see that God is on the move, both in a negative and in a positive. He both stays the provision, proves that Baal has no power, keeps him pinned, if you will, and at the same time is the giver of life. Not just of the daily nourishment required for life, but even life from the dead is in the power of God. Now we move forward, verse one of 18, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, okay? So this drought has gone on completely, not a drop, not a day of rain for two years and into the third year, and we'll find pretty late into the third year uh, this is taking place. And so God speaks to Elijah and says, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And so we're introduced to a new character here. His name is Obadiah. We're told that he fears the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel was putting the prophets of God uh, to death, he found a hundred of them and hid them. But I want you to also notice where this man is, not just who he is. He's serving in the household. What household? Ahab's household. As we'll see, he's one of his top advisors. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we've got this, this prophetic, external, in your face ministry that challenges, and then we've got somebody who is right there and present in the midst. And we don't know a lot about Obadiah, except here that he fears the Lord greatly and that at great risk to himself, he hid many of the Lord's prophets. And I think we have to watch out because sometimes we have a tendency uh, to rightly recognize and value the Elijahs and question the Obadiahs. The thing is, God promises that he never leaves himself without a witness. And the thing is, although much of Israel is wavering between God and Baal, there's still people riding out this drought who are in God's care, just like Elijah. Elijah is convinced he's the only one, we'll see, who's still left. But because of the behavior of Obadiah, that's not the case. And so here he's done this. In verse 5, Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Okay? That's a pretty good test point for how bad the drought's gotten. They're getting to the point of hard choices. We're at a place now where either we eat or the animals eat, but not both. And so despite the fact that the drought is national, He says, just go look. Maybe somewhere in the land you'll find enough green grass so that the horses uh, survive. So they divided, verse 6, the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And Obadiah was on the way, as he was on the way. Behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, it is I, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give me your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? He fears the Lord, but he does also fear Ahab. And at first it's like, wait, what's the problem here? Ahab's been looking for Elijah. Now Elijah shows up to deliver himself freely into his presence. You would expect this to be exactly You would expect it to be a good opportunity for Obadiah, but he doesn't see it that way, and and he explains why. Verse ten: As the Lord your God lives, there's that phrase again. There is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you, and they would, when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. He says, "You're here now." But the king, for years, has looked everywhere, every bordering, bordering nation, and he's made them swear in front of him that you're not present. And then notice here, verse 11 now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I'm your servant and have feared the Lord for my youth. He just says, What if I leave? And when I come back, you're gone again. Last time God hid you so well, the king couldn't find you. How am I going to find you? Right? And so what he needs here is assurance. And so uh, verse 13, he says, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, there again is that phrase, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Okay, so he declares his intent. His intent is not not to frustrate Ahab. His intent is not to risk Obadiah's life, um, but he wants to send Obadiah as a messenger. So verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, there doesn't really seem to be an original bone in Ahab's body. This is a clever phrase, troubler of Israel. In my opinion, he's picked up this language. He's picked up this label. This is Jezebel's term, and now he has finally a chance to employ it. But whether I'm right or wrong... What does he say here? He says, this drought is your fault. You know, if we could expand on what he says here, what is he implying? All of the hunger, all of the hurt, all of the pain that Israel's in, you have caused this, right? He's angry, but Elijah speaks honestly and clearly and says, verse 18, he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Jezebel can blame Elijah all she wants, but it's Ahab who has forsaken the Lord their God and aligned Israel with Baal, uh, and that's why circumstances are the way they are. The judgment is just, uh, and it is a consequence of Ahab's rule. Verse 19, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Even there, notice how he addresses here. Whose table is it? It's Jezebel's. And most likely she's got her own place and her own table, and that's true. Uh, but, But here we have just this clue on who's really calling the shots. So, verse 20, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel looks over the... It is... Uh, a significant high point in Israel, it's also close enough to the border of Sidon that it probably has worship significance both for Israel and for Sidonia, both for the God of Israel and for Baal, okay? And so it's not necessarily neutral territory, uh, but it is a fair playing field. No one necessarily has home field advantage, if you will, uh, in this setup. And notice who he's called here. He wants all of the prophets of Baal, as well as the prophets prophets of Asherah. Um, Asherah was Baal's female consort, another part of the Canaanite uh, pantheon, uh, as well as all the people, okay? And so um, all of them gathered together. Uh, Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. the people did not answer him a word. And so he challenges Israel here, and he says something relatively similar to something that Jesus says. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve the Lord and Mammon, this this God of wealth, this God of money, right? He says, for either you will love one and despise the other, or in seeking to serve one, you won't serve the other, but you cannot do both. And Elijah pictures the people here as if they're um, running between two altars, trying to cater to two gods, and therefore not serving wholeheartedly either of them. They're limping between two different opinions. And so they don't have an answer. And notice what Elijah says in verse 22. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now we're going to notice here that everything Elijah does has to do with the odds, okay? And so the first thing he does here is he says, there's only one of me and there's 450 of them, okay? And so that's the first tension he makes. And then he says, verse 23, let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves. Notice they get the first choice Uh, and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And so he says, we'll prepare two sacrifices, but neither of us will light the altar. And the one that God sends, the one God that sends fire from heaven uh, and lights the altar, that one is the one we will worship. And the people say, that's a good idea verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Okay. So four hours, they, uh, they cry out to Baal around this altar saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And that's the same phrase from earlier. Why do you limp between two opinions? Uh, it's a weird thing to find here. Uh, so it's clearly a play on words, right? It's not that their worship involved faking a limp or something like that. Although, as we'll see, it does involve an extensive amount of injury and bloodletting. Uh, but the idea here is, is mocking. In fact, there's a good deal of satirical language within this passage. The Bible has no problem mocking the gods that are not gods. Okay, and so here, as they worship, their worship is, uh, you know, I mean, we think the Super Bowl is a big deal. This is the event of all events, and here they are, you know, just limping around the field. That's the image of it for four hours. You know, they're they're on this, and then notice, verse twenty-seven at noon. Elijah mocked them saying cry aloud for he's a god either he's musing you know he's deep in thought and can't hear you right that's my wife would resonate with that I do that quite a lot and so the idea here is that if you just say it louder you just hey hey I'm talking to you Baal right either he's musing or he's on a journey perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened now that second phrase there for journey in in our text it's still funny it's like maybe he's not at home Maybe he went out and is on vacation and is just unavailable. You know, he'll answer all his messages when he returns. But the Targum translates this a little bit differently. And it says maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's out of the house because he's had to relieve himself. And then he says maybe he's fallen asleep or must be awakened. Verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed upon them. Okay, so they escalate here, not just with crying out, uh, but with blood ritual, with pain and sacrifice to try and provoke the God to a response. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now, once again, notice the author's voice there. He could have said, but Baal isn't real right? He, he could have said, but nothing happened. But he pushes it. He says, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention, because no one's there, right? Because there is no Baal. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. And the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Now there's a a mild rebuke there, because he takes 12 stones, not 10, right? Israel is divided at this part, but there's only one Israel. They were all given the name governed by God uh, here, and so as is supposed to be designed, he takes 12 stones, one for each tribe, and with the stones, verse 32, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And so here's where we see a difference. The first thing he says is, I'm outnumbered. The second is, he says, you can choose the best calf. Third, he says, you can go first, right? Because what would have happened? What would have happened if fire fell? Do you think they'd care if it happened to Elijah? Would it be like, hold off, let's see if it's a tie? That's not what's going to happen. He gives them every advantage, and now he starts to give himself disadvantages, And so as they're watching, he builds a standard issue, Israel altar, and then suddenly he builds a trench around it. One of pretty good depth, okay? Uh, And then notice verse 33, he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burning offering and on the wood. So the second thing he does here is he soaks the wood The offering itself, the altar that it's on with water. And notice here, he specifically says, fill four jars, and then verse 34, he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and then do it a third time, and they did it a third time. Mathematically, that's 12 jars worth of water that get poured out on this, okay? And so there's another emphasis here on Israel, but really what's going on here is, you know, even Elijah, couldn't light this altar now okay in fact notice the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water okay this is a lot of water that's poured over this offering verse 36 and at the time of the offering of the oblation okay now we get another difference they were given all morning and more so and here the um the tense changes okay now uh in in greek which this is not written in but just to help us understand. Um, in Greek language, they have more than just our three tenses. We just talk about past, present, future. But the Greek has a few other ways to address things, and one of them uh, is the same as what's going on here. We call it the aorist tense, okay? Aorist means a single mo- point on the timeline. Not an area of time, not a general vague piece of time, but a dot. And I want you to notice here, they have a time. They cry out for all morning, but at the time of the offering of the oblation, right? This is a momentary thing, not a long-standing thing. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, I want you to notice there we see another difference. They cry out loudly and collectively, and he just speaks. He speaks quietly, uh, and he basically just says, God, prove yourself, remind your people, show that you are the living God. And then notice he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, that could say something different. It could say they would know and they would turn their hearts back. But we need to remember and recognize here that God is already acting graciously in initiating this whole thing. What's happened for three years? Has Israel turned around? No. God sends Elijah to demonstrate who the living God is. He's actively working. Okay. This is the human condition in a nutshell. Okay. When Adam sins in the very beginning. Does he go looking for God? Does he go, oh, I can't believe I did that. I've got I've to call my landlord. We've got to get this fixed, right? He doesn't. He does nothing until he hears God coming. And then what does he do? He hides. And at that point, when he says, Adam, come out here, does Adam go, hey, man, we really got to talk? No. God asks him a question. He says, why are you hiding? Did you eat of the tree? Right? The initiation is constant and continuous. And even, even though uh, God lays out judgment, he makes a way back. But who makes the way? Does he lay out the judgment and Adam goes, you're right, I've sinned. The consequences are what I deserve. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. No, God says, I've got a plan and I'm going to send a redeemer and I'm going to fix it. And then he says, also, that way you're trying to cover yourself up, it's not going to work. And he takes the very first life in human history, the life of an animal, and he clothes Adam and Eve, right? Pointing forward to this final sacrifice that God would provide. This is such an obvious truth, uh, but I think it's not that we would ever think this, but in a deeper level, I think this is the status quo for what we think. God didn't send Jesus because we cried for help. God initiated salvation in sending Jesus That's what we see going on with Elijah here. God is graciously and mercifully, again, after a long history of already making himself known, making himself known in the present tense, turning the hearts of Israel back. And so he prays this prayer, and then notice uh, verse 38 Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. The striking one on that list, of course, is the stones. I don't even know what heat temperature is required to incinerate stone instantly, right? The entire altar is gone at this point. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Okay. Notice here, this, this return in the covenant has to be holistic. All of these prophets are not just prophets. They are false prophets. They've fallen under the condemnation of the covenant in Deuteronomy uh, as such. And so they're, they're put to death for their sin. And it's a big number. And so that may even bother us, but remember, there's a three-year duration of destruction and definitely death, and all of it lays at the foot of this cabinet, and these prophets in particular who have misled Israel, okay? And so, verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. He says, okay. You need to head back to Jezreel. And then he says, eat and drink. Now, I don't know why it says that, but I do want you to notice that it seems like a return to status quo. He takes this response of the, uh, the, response of the people, he applies it to, Abra- or to, to Ahab too, and he basically says, okay, repentance is now, restoration is now, back into life. Okay. We're going to see that's probably a misgaging of what's happening. Um, but he says, you need to get home because there's a storm coming, right? I hear the sound of a rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now here's another lesson that I think we can draw uh, from Elijah tonight. We've already seen that God is the one who initiates and people respond, but remember here, God sent Elijah, because it was going to rain. Now he's conveyed the message because it's going to rain. And the first thing he does is he gets down and he prays for it to rain. Okay, in fact, notice uh, Elijah went up to the town of Mount Carmel, he bowed himself down to the earth, and he put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. He said, Go again. Seven times he did this, and on the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so get the pattern here. It's not just Elijah prays for rain, but he continuously prays for the rain until it comes. Okay. Uh, the reason why I'm emphasizing this tonight is because we need to recognize here um, that faith is active. Faith prays that God would fulfill his promises. Faith somehow enters into the work of God itself even though it's something God said he would do and we have to be careful here because there's another version of this that we're much more prone to instead of prayer that is not faith and that's trying to do the things God said he would do that's Jacob praying God will you please protect me from my brother and then saying amen and going okay here's my plan of how I'm going to keep us safe and coming up with a plan It's Abraham at Sarah's bequest who says, you know what, when God said he'd give us a son, maybe he meant we should give us a son. So I've got this servant, she's very fertile. Let's take her son as our son, right? That's presumption. But prayer is not presumption. Here, Elijah knows that the right and proper response here is to pray that God would do what he says he would do. And it's worth pointing out here we've already seen a significant amount of powers in the prayers of Elijah, In fact, listen to what James tells us in James chapter five. All of us have Bible heroes. I've never met anyone whose hero is Elijah. And I think there's a reason for that. It's too much. Whatever he is, whatever superstar we're talking about, whatever level we're talking about, this isn't something that any of us aspire to. This isn't a life that any of us expect to live. But notice what James tells us here in James chapter 5. Read with me in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Notice here he has no problem using Elijah as an example, and he reminds us there's nothing amazing about Elijah. He's a man with a human nature like we have. In fact, we're going to get a solid lesson of that in just a minute. What makes makes the life of Elijah is two things, the word of God and the power of prayer. The same tools that Elijah uses here are available to us. And so James says we should believe that prayer makes a difference. We should lean in and ask God for things. In fact, earlier in the letter, James says a lot of times we have not because we ask not. And other times, we have not because we ask with wrong motives. And here's one of the things that I would suggest to you. That doesn't mean don't pray until you know your motives are right. It means pray your prayers pure. It means pray in a way that is open and receptive Pray in a way that doesn't just ask God to do, but ask God to search and to inspect. And I think here in James, when it says that he fervently prayed and it didn't rain for three years, that we should probably read that not as he fervently prayed for a week and then three years of answer, but this was a daily and continuous engagement between him and God. Every day it didn't pray because every day Elijah prayed. It excuse me, every day it didn't rain because every day Elijah prayed. He was a participant in what God was doing. So, going back here, he prays and then he does stop praying. And notice here, he doesn't stop praying when he's soaked to the bone. He doesn't stop praying, uh, you know, when he feels the first raindrop. As soon as his servant says, I see a cloud in the distance, but it's so small, it's like the size of my hand. He knows what that means. Once again, this prayer is not a prayer of desperation. If I don't pray, God won't do this. As soon as he sees this tiny little, no nothing, uh, tiny little cloud, he responds. And notice what he tells his servant here. Uh, Verse uh, 44, the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising up from the sea. And he said, Go up to Ahab and say, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. He says, you are barely going to have enough time to get home, okay? Now, he's not just wishing healthy or uh, sunny travels. He's in a chariot, okay? What happens in a significant rainstorm to a chariot? You're stuck, right? It becomes a muddy mess and you're stuck. That's the danger here. And then notice verse 45, in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Okay. Now, once again, this means one of two things. Either he says, gather your chariot, and then he travels with him, but he does it on foot. Or Ahab gets a head start, and Elijah beats him on foot. Okay. Either would be significant. The distance is 27 kilometers. Okay. This is a significant distance. It's, um, it's not a marathon, but it's more than a half marathon. Okay? It's a pretty good distance that he travels on foot here, ahead of a chariot that's going its fastest. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Once again, everybody observing Elijah's life sees something significant. It's noticeable. It's supernatural. Chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Jezebel hears about this and she's furious and she says, I am going to take your life in 24 hours. And then notice what happens, verse 3, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. What? How could that possibly be? In fact, we're going to see that he's so afraid, he has somewhat of a downward spiral. And within a paragraph, he's going to be begging that God just take his life. He waves the big white flag. He surrenders the day after the victory of Mount Carmel. Now, how do we explain that? here's what I would suggest to you, okay, two things seem to be significant Achilles heels for Elijah. One is, yesterday he stood as the only prophet, and he stood that in that in a place of power. Today, as we're going to see, that's a tremendous part of fear, okay. Now, I would not stand, uh, you know, Stand over Elijah in judgment and say, maybe he has a little bit of ego mixed up in this. I have no idea, and frankly, uh, I would expect his life to be a much greater struggle with pride than my own. So the comparison's an unfair one. Okay, um, but there may be another thing that's going on here. What do you think Elijah was expecting to happen next? Total and complete victory. He thought the prophets of Baal, that's the finish line. We're back to business as usual. We're back to repentance. And now he goes, oh, this isn't over. He thought that Ahab was enough. And he finds behind Ahab someone who's as devoted to Baal as he is devoted to the God of Israel. He finds Jezebel. It's like all the superhero trilogies where at the end of the first movie, you find out that the villain was just a pawn. And behind them is a much greater force, right? Which is why every second movie in these trilogies is always this relearning that you know nothing. It's losing all your Power Mans, or all of your Spider-Man powers. It's those types of movies. It's starting over again. What happens here, I would suggest, is that he recognizes this isn't just three years. This is going to be a long-standing fight. He's not sure he has it in him. Now that sounds familiar. Have you ever been riding high on something significant God did in your life and then you have to wake up tomorrow and you realize that life still continues, that the baggage is still there, that even if you've had a victory here, the battle on another front lines is still raging? And so he runs, he's afraid Verse 4 He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Now, I think what he means when he says, I'm no better than my father's, there is failure. I've failed. And maybe that failure is the fact that Jezebel is still standing, that things go on. Or maybe the failure is that he ran. And he's feeling the full weight of his cowardice but either way he says i deserve to die i'm ready to die i don't want to live and notice verse five he lay down and slept under a broom tree that's it he just says don't wake me in the morning and he goes to sleep Um, and so verse five behold an angel touched him and said to him arise and eat and he looked and behold there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and he drank and he laid down again and so even here for the struggling prophet for the running prophet for the afraid prophet god miraculously provides for him and it's interesting because notice the order here god's going to speak to elijah but he starts by feeding him and what happens after he feed it feeds him elijah just lays back down and goes to sleep again This is not the best place to make this point, but it is a significant component here. We have a tendency uh, to assume that because God is spirit, that we only need spiritual solutions. Now, let's be honest, what happens here is miraculous, but it is miraculous in physical provision. He needs to eat and to drink. And apparently here, God sees that as first and primary and is going to feed him again. He's going to let him sleep. There is a physical nature, and that shouldn't surprise us because God has made us physical beings. And let me remind you that your body is not just a vessel that you drive around with some sort of internal real you. That's why if I cut your arm and I key your car, one I injure your property, the other I injure you. You are not merely your body. That would be materialism, okay? That would say everything you feel, everything you think is not real. It's just the firing of synapses and the things spiraling out from your DNA over and over again, just chemicals. But you are also also really your body. You're not merely your body, but you really are your body. In fact, God sent Jesus and he took on flesh so that you could be made alive, embodied. So that just as Jesus was raised physically, so also, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we will be raised physically. Um, And so here, we need to recognize that taking care of ourselves physically is a significant part of taking care of ourselves. It's something that God does regularly. It's why God never calls for a fast for the rest of our life because it will be the rest of our life it will just be very short and so here you know once again I don't think it's good to turn this into a text on how to help your friends when they struggle with depression because it's only one instance and it's only one thing it's got a lot of circumstances but God nourishes his body and makes sure he's well rested in fact he does so notice verse 7 the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said arise and eat for the journey is too great for you He says, you need to nourish up, because I've got plans for you, but this comes first. I want to make a suggestion to you tonight. It's a suggestion on how you should think about medication when it comes to things like depression and other mental struggles. You are a physical being, which means oftentimes your struggles have physical components. In fact, the school known as biblical counseling or traditionally new aesthetic counseling, which is taken from a word at the end of Romans, able to admonish, new aesthetic counseling, uh, its founder, Jay Adams, who really pushed pushed back against psychology, pushed back against this secular care of souls that he said had invaded the true care of souls, which is the church. He pushed back against Christian psychologists who took those things and then painted a veneer of Christian understanding over it. And he said, I'd like to call you heretics, but the creeds don't mention counseling, so I can't. But every time he counseled, the first thing he would do is say, I want you to go see your physician. That's always where he would start. He wanted to deal with the physical and the mental and the spiritual and the other components. And he always sought to do so. Because you are physical, medicine can be a significant part, but here's what you need to keep in mind with, um, with uh, psychiatry and with the medicines we prescribe for depression or anxiety or anything else. None of them cure the problem. They're not supposed to. What they do is reduce the symptoms that you're feeling, take the edge off your condition to give you room, ideally, to deal with the problem. And so, so uh, use them. Take advantage of them. Don't use them without extensive support from your doctor because of all medicines, uh, psychiatric medicine is the, the one that needs to be the most customized, the one that needs the most attention. And I will tell you honestly, I've lost more than a few friends to suicide because of medicine changes that did not have the right oversight. Use them, but recognize that's not going to deal with the problem. If you can't even face life, maybe like Elijah, you need rest and you need food and you need drink so that you're ready for the journey. But better living through chemistry is not the journey. And if we settle for anesthetization, we miss out on what God wants to do. You are physical, but you are more than physical. And so he says, feed, and then verse 8, he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. No normal meal is provided for here. He, on this, goes 40 days without food and presumably without water, all the way to Horeb. And notice here, Horeb is called the mount of God. Why? Because this is the place in Exodus 3, Horeb, the mount of God, that phrase is used there in Exodus 3, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. Elijah here, he isn't going back in his own story to the beginning of his own story. He's going back to the beginning of Israel's redemption in Moses. He's going to the place where where God appeared to Horeb. And while he's there, notice what happens. Verse 9, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, even that I find really striking. Because he could have asked that 40 days ago. But he doesn't. Also, does God know? Of course he does. What is he doing? He's drawing Elijah out. He's drawing Elijah into conversation, not because God needs information, but because Elijah needs God. And so he says, what are you doing here? And he answers, verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. Even I only. That's the same phrase he used against the prophets of Baal. But now he sees it as a terrible thing and an evidence that the fight is over and lost. He says, and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 11, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And so his complaint here is basically, there's nothing left. I gave it my all. I thought we'd accomplished it, but it wasn't enough. And now they're trying to kill me as well. And God says, I want to show you something. Go out on the mountain. And so uh, verse uh, 11, he said, go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So the first thing he sees is this, wind and it's so strong that it's actually breaking apart rocks on the mountain but the lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake but the lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire but the lord was not in the fire and after the fire the sound of a low whisper and when elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave okay and so first there's this wind Then there's an earthquake, and then there's a fire, but he doesn't find God speaking in any of those things. It's it's a low whisper, it's a still, small voice. Now, I think there's two different directions to read this, what's going on here. One is to look back at Elijah's life, and he's had three big, earth-shattering things, okay? He prays for the drought, and the drought is. He prays that fire would descend and consume the altar, and it does. He prays for rain and it pours, but God's plan is something greater than the big things. The other way to read this has to do with what God does next, okay? And so he comes out, he hears the still small voice, um, and so the voice came to him, and again it asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats word for word what he said earlier. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, why the repetition? I would suggest to you it's because God is trying to get his attention, and here he's testing to see if Elijah's received it. It's not very different from a chiropractor who does his work and says, go ahead and try it again right? How do you feel now? Might be a good way to read it. Why are you here now? And he says the same thing. He's still in the same place. And then notice here, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel milah you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place." Now, I want you to notice here, in the same way that there were three big encounters, here he gives Elijah three plans. Okay? Interestingly enough, as we, see, as we will see in the story, first, Hazael being king over Syria is going to be a constant combatant to Ahab. Isn't that weird? He sends him to an anoint, anoint a pagan king. But the reason is because this is going to be part of the big, long journey of what God is doing to bring his people back from Baal. And just like we saw with that wind breaking apart the rocks, Haziel is just going to bang against Israel and bang against Ahab over and over again. The second one here is Jehu. Okay. And Jehu is to be anointed as well as king over Israel. This is going to be Ahab's replacement. right? Um, and uh, he actually... Uh, interestingly enough, just like an earthquake is going to split the country into civil war. And then there's Elisha, and Elisha is the flame of the Lord, right? The ministry that he picks up the mantle of from Elijah's and and continues on is going to be a significant part of this. But, But there's a secret part. It's not found in any of those places. Notice what it says next. Verse 17, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here he finally says, actually, I do just want to correct one thing you said. You're not the only one. I'm maintaining for myself and keeping 7,000 pure who have not worshiped Baal. Now, in the New Testament, Paul makes a comparison in Romans chapter 9, and he refers to this group as a remnant. Right? Here, in the apostasy of Israel, it seems like the whole world is lost, and God says, no, I've reserved for myself 7,000. I would suggest to you that that is the still small voice. That the place where God is going to work in and through Israel, it's unseen, it's unknown, it's merely a remnant. And yet from this point on in Israel's history, God constantly maintains and, and keeps a remnant. And so uh, in Isaiah, in chapter 10, he's talking about the fact that God is now going to bring uh, judgment on Assyria, on Babylon, on the captors of Israel. Uh, he lays all of this out and he says, and there will be when all is burned, when nothing is left, there will be a remnant. Yes, discipline. Yes, destruction. Yes, exile. But I will preserve for myself a people in Israel. This is something that we can rely upon and trust that God is always faithful to do, despite the evidence to the contrary. Never once in the history of Israel has Israel been eradicated and then the religion later discovered again. Never once in Christianity has Christianity been wiped out, although many have tried. Never will Christianity be fully and completely corrupted. God always saves for himself a remnant. If you get a chance to read it, uh, Shelley's Church History in Plain Language is a really accessible and good um, good book on church history. And one of the things that he shows is in every age, whatever was going on at the church at large, there was always this remnant. God's work always continued, and sometimes it was hidden, and sometimes it was small. And that's the lesson Elijah needs to learn. Why? Because since he didn't know it, he was discouraged. He despaired. And so he goes about his work, and the thing that he does, closing the chapter here, is he calls his replacement Elisha. Verse 19, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Now, we know what that means in practice, okay? What that means is he's part of a very wealthy family, okay? And so all of his servants are plowing in front of him with eleven other pairs of oxen, and he's taking the final lap, okay? Uh, which would be easier uh, and all those things. But he comes from a wealthy family, okay? Uh, On top of that, notice what happens here. Elijah passed him and cast his cloak upon him. So he just walks out and walks up, and as we've seen often, it's a symbolic action here, okay? Just like the prophet who tore his clothing into 12, just like when Samuel uh, responded to the tearing of his clothing with Saul, uh, over and over again, we see this. And here, you know, This one's so obvious that we actually take this phrase and use it sometimes in modern English, right? Elisha is going to take up the mantle of Elijah. Okay? He's going to take over the ministry. It's like prophetic tag. Elijah's it. Right? That's what happens here. And Elijah knows what it means, and so verse twenty, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. I love that. Because get the picture here, okay? Elijah walks by, throws it on him, and then just keeps walking. And so he figures out what's going on. He's like, wait, was that Elijah? And then he stops what he's doing, and he runs after him. And notice what he says. He says, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? He says, I'm coming, but I want to say goodbye to my family. And effectively, what he says here is fine. Do it. And so what does he do? Verse 21, he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yoke of oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And so he, he celebrates this, and he also takes the plow that he was working, breaks it down, and uses that as the wood to burn. He, he burns his bridges, okay? He leaves his wealth, his family, everything behind for the calling that's upon him. Now here's what's interesting. When we get to the ministry of Jesus, We find an occasion where those who would like to follow Jesus make a similar statement as Elisha makes to Elijah here. Let me first bury my father. Let me just close things up with my family. Now to be fair, what he's saying there is not my dad died on Thursday, can I wait for the funeral? What he's saying is let me stay at the house until my father dies and the inheritance is divvied and then I will come and follow. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, but as for you, come and follow me. And then he goes on and he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is worthy to follow me. See, as significant as Elijah is and the calling to follow Elijah, calling Jesus is in a different category. As I mentioned, during the transfiguration, when Peter and James and John are with Jesus and they see him transfigured before them and he's speaking about his coming crucifixion with Moses and Elijah. Peter responds and he sees the three greatest people he's ever heard of. Jesus, who he's touched and heard and seen do the miraculous, who he believes is the Messiah, the promised one. Moses, the mediator of the covenant, and Elijah, the great prophet of God, and he says this, he says, Jesus, is so good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for each of you, and then we can stay here. He basically says, can we just retire? Can this conference just last forever? And then suddenly this cloud comes and overco- overcovers Peter and everyone else, and he hears a voice from heaven, and heaven, uh, the heavenly voice says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And the clouds removed, and all they saw was Jesus. Categorically a different place. So, well, let me just finish with this. Jesus tells a parable about a man who's walking through a field and just stumbles upon buried treasure. And at a glance, he knows that that treasure is so valuable that he goes home, he sells everything he has, and offers that to buy the field, right? Because in the exchange, he loses what? Nothing. It's all gain and no cost. Okay. Elijah sees that. Elisha sees that in following Elijah. He breaks the plow. He burns, he says his goodbye, knowing, in a sense, he's never going to return. What we're offered in Jesus Christ is so much more significant, so much more valuable. David Livingston, the one from the Bugs Bunny cartoons, Dr. Livingston, I presume, that guy. He was a missionary in Africa, and while he was there, he lost multiple wives. He wasn't married to them all at the same time. He lost them consecutively. Uh, and many children to the rare diseases of Africa. Okay. He, he lived out the rest of his days, and eventually one of those diseases took his life as well. Relatively late in his diary, he makes this statement. He says, I've never made a sacrifice. He understood. He got the picture. Let's pray. Father, sometimes when we talk about living a miraculous life, we treat you like our empowerment coach, our life coach who who wants for us our best life now. But when we look at Elijah, we see something different. We do see a life that is miraculous. We also see a life that's tremendously human. When we look at it broadly, what we see is a God who is both powerful and good, who is so committed to his people that he raises up prophets, who is so committed to his people that he demonstrates again, even though he doesn't need to, even though we're the ones who closed our eyes, that he is the God who loves us how regularly, how often, Lord, you draw us back out. And you are the God who initiated a call. I pray, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'd protect us from looking back. You call us to count the cost. But the truth is, when we do the sums of the kingdom of heaven, we always come out with a win. We always come out with security because what we lay up in the kingdom of heaven, moth can't eat and thief can't steal and rust can't destroy. And what we lay up in the kingdom of heaven is so secure that like Paul, we can say it's not subject to death or life or sword or powers, or things that are, or things that will come, that nothing can take from us what God has given us in Jesus Christ, which is your love. You, Lord, are the treasure. I pray, Lord, that you teach us to live a life of faith, which is a life of prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.